Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Chris Cast. I'm your host, Chris. Joining me once again by Facebook Messenger is Paul. Say hello, Paul. Hello, Paul. I'm going to start out with a really great story this week. Of course, it comes out of total tragedy. This is from Yahoo News. Did, did you see the... It was Saturday when this was published, but did you see what they found in the Florida condo collapse? No. Binks the cat alive and well. A uh, kitty cat lived? Yep. Wow. It says, Binks the cat, a resident on the ninth floor of, Sh of the Champlain Tower South, was found alive and reunited with his family on Friday, more than two weeks after the building collapsed. Binks was found by volunteers near the rubble at the site of the collapse. Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine Cava said in a news conference, after 16 long and extremely difficult days, I'm happy to be able to share a small piece of good news, the mayor said, announcing that Binks had been reunited with his family hours earlier. And there's a picture on the article of the cat with an officer, and the officer's petting the cat and holding it. And the cat looks to be in incredible health. So, I don't know how Binks survived but Binks did survive so very good news coming out of a totally tragic story well I just go show cats do have nine lives and it's a very pretty cat too it's black and it looks like it's a pretty large cat I want to see if I can find that article is it spelled Binks just like it the uh Huh? B-I-N-X. It's, it's a very pretty black cat, and in the picture it looks very happy. Eyes closed as he's being petted. So, I... Aw, there it is. Beautiful kitty cat. And just for knowledge of this... It said Binks was living on the ninth floor. There were 12 stories in this tower. So there were three floors that collapsed on top of the floor that this cat was in. And this cat survived. Wow. So. And of course, I think the death toll what about the is family? now over 100. The what? So, it was reunited? Yeah, the it was reunited after two weeks. More than two weeks yeah. after the collapse. So, the family is alive. And I'm sure extremely happy to have their cat back. Because I know how I would feel if I was missing an animal after something like that. What if the cat's a ghost? It's not a ghost, Paul. It's a living, breathing creature. Well, you know, it could be, like, a ghost cat. It's not a ghost cat. It's a real cat. Okay, a zombie cat. How about a zombie cat? It could be a zombie cat. Well, then that zombie cat is in extremely good shape for two weeks without eating brains. It could be eating something. We're, we're all going to ignore Paul's stupidity and just focus on the joy of this story. I'm going to start calling it Binks and Zombie Cat. 
No. I think I think that's more interesting. I think it's very interesting that the cat survived a twelve-story collapse when it was on the ninth because story. Because it had vampire blood in it. It's just a kitty, and we're talking about kitties, and I have a kitty toes up out here. And, and as you pick up your black cat... Yeah, he's a sweet kitty, too. Spoiled rotten. I want to hear it meow. Make it meow. I don't want him to meow. He meows all the time. I'm trying to get him to stop meowing. But he's purring, I'll tell you that. Your cat is huge. That cat, that's a cat. That cat ain't no cat. That's a panther. No, Max was the one who looked like a panther. Gibby looks like he's cross-eyed. Both of them were black cats. Gibby was mom's cat. And I took him in when she passed. Because he had to have a home, didn't you, boy? Aw. Couldn't let him just go out on the street? There you go. Uh. Run along, buddy. But, but anyways... Binks the cat back with his family where he belongs, and Yay! we're all happy about that. And another thing, and I've always said I'll give credit where credit is due, I have to applaud a Republican this week. Oh my God, thank God I'm laying down. The, What's going on? This is from CNN. Kingsinger slams GOP colleagues for invoking Nazi-era imagery to criticize COVID vaccination efforts. The article read, Republican Re Representative Adam Kinzinger slammed his GOP colleagues, including Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, for invoking a Nazi-era imagery to mock President Joe Biden's latest COVID-19 vaccination efforts. Quote, it's absolute insanity. The Illinois congressman said of his fellow House Republicans' comments in an interview with CNN's Jake Tapper on State of the Union. This is outrage politics that is being played by my party, and it's going to get Americans killed. Our party has been hijacked. My party has been hijacked. It is on the way to the ground, and for some people, it's a fun ride, right? We can put out this outrageous stuff on Twitter. Yeah, I'm going to get all these retweets, and everybody knows me. I'm famous, he said. But this plane is going to crash to the ground. So, right there, those words show this is a Republican that's actually using his brain for a change. And I applaud him for actually being brave enough to step out on national television and speak out against his colleagues that are doing so wrong. So... Well, it's okay. Trump will throw him under the bus and no one will vote for him and it's the party of Trump. It's no longer the Republican. But that's exactly what he said. His party has been hijacked. See, yeah. if we had more Republicans like this guy, I could respect them. The problem is, we have Republicans like Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I can't respect them. And not to get too political this week, but something else. I guess you saw that Texas, the... The, is it the senator or governor there is trying to arrest the Democratic politicians from the state who left so they couldn't vote on the voting restrictions? Oh, yeah, they're, yeah, they're threatening them. And my question is, if you're going to arrest them for trying to prevent a travesty of justice that's restricting voting rights keeping eligible voters from being able to vote legally and fairly, 
but you're not going to say anything about the... They're all just crazy, and they all need to be voted out. I mean, come on. Warren Boebert. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So... But, you know, the, the other problem is they're wanting to arrest these Democrats for leaving and not participating in the vote. But yet, where was the call to arrest Ted Cruz for fleeing the country when his people were literally freezing to death? You know? It's, you know, it's, it's I, I just can't with these people. If, if we're going to look at offenses, is it a bigger offense to flee the state to prevent a vote on fraudulent laws? Or is it worse to flee the state and country while your people are freezing to death, literally? Like, literally freezing to death. Not just a turn of phrase, but actually happening. So, yeah, that's the kind of Republicans that I have no use for. But Adam Kinzinger... I applaud him. I'm glad he's stepping out and taking charge and actually speaking out against these people. And the more this happens, the better we'll have because each one opens up some eyes. And even if he only has five of his people stick with him and actually agree with what he says, that's five more people against the bad Republican Party. And each person helps because those five people can talk to their friends and point out, look, you know, this is the way it is. We can't be acting like this because I've said it before. When it comes to these vaccines, are you going to believe a politician or a doctor? Same thing as if you're in a car wreck. Are you going to have the ER doctor work on you or are you going to have a politician work on you? Oh, I can go to right now. It's funny about what we're talking about is I can go right now on Twitter and I can go to um, Ted Cruz's wall. I can go to Laura Berbert's wall, Marjorie Taylor Greene's wall on Twitter, and also, also what's that mouthpiece on Fox that I hate so much? Tucker Carlson. Hates a strong word. Tucker Carlson. I can go to his wall and every one of them, every, every, every time they post something, there's this number one reposter that says, Tell us that you're vaccinated. Tell everyone you're vaccinated. And all these people are chiming in going, we all know that you've been vaccinated, but you're you're railing against it for your constituents and blah, blah, blah. Tucker Carlson, all of them have been vaccinated, but they're, uh, it's just, they're just, I hope that, you know, I was, well, it's some kind of article that I, that I read that's talking about how covid uh, has actually risen 97% in certain parts of the country, and they're all red states. Um, Go figure. Well, let's... And the deaths are rising, too, and I hope that someone sues the hell out of these people. Well, let's, let's look at other facts, too. Remember, Trump got vaccinated in January. Yeah, he did. He has still not admitted to being vaccinated. Even though it's been well reported that he got the vaccination. And he has passingly said, yeah, the vaccine is good, it's, you should get it. But never forcefully said that the vaccine is good and you should get it. Just a, oh, well, it's good, you should get it, bye, kind of thing. 
I was listening to CNN or MSN one day this week. They had a lawyer on there. No, uh, somebody had written a book uh, that had just came out about what was going on in the White House after the election. And did you know the reason why no one would host Donald Trump after it was... Um, uh, it was after it was the election night, November third, November third, election night. Uh, the only place they could hold any kind of parties was at the White House. That's the reason why they held all those parties at the White House after the election because they had to have it sequential nights for everybody they wanted. No one would host them because of the COVID, what was going on with COVID. Well, Melania Trump said. No, we're not hosting anything at the White House because she's a germaphobe just like Donald Trump is, and they did not want COVID brought into the White House. Well, it was not until four days before the election until finally Melania Trump caved and said, fine, have it, but I'm not going to be there. Well, and she, she didn't. She didn't go. <laughs> well, she's such a wonderful person anyways. It's like I always said... People were trying to defend her from the start. I don't start, care to you, Chris. And I don't care. I don't really care. But I don't care to you. But the that's what I said. Uh, you know, she chose to marry Trump. I had no sympathy for her from the start. She put herself in that position. Because people were trying to make her out like she's some kind of victim because she married Trump and got pulled into this. No. You could tell, just like I could tell with Trump when I was like, 13 years old, 14 years old, what a total piece of crap that he is. I could tell the same about her just by looking at her, plus the fact that she's married to Trump. You gotta be pretty bad to marry that guy. That's all I'm oh, saying. that reminds me. Also, they had, a, they had a contractor on there, and Trump made the statement, I know more about contractors than anybody. And the, they had a contractor that they interviewed this week, and they said, yeah, he knows more about contractors by stepping them and not paying them. That one the woman on there, she said she he owes my company eight million dollars from work from the work we did on the Taj Mahal Casino in New Jersey, and she said, and it's been demolished since. And she said he never paid us. Well, we're not surprised. But like we talked last week, hopefully his taxes will put him away, and that'll be all and said and done, and. He won't have a platform anymore, and nobody will really accept him in. And they also had an interview, and they said that he would throw his own children under the bus to keep him going to church, keep him going to, um, to prison. Of course he would, because he's a total piece of crap. But let's move on to something more fun. <laughs> hey, I was having fun with this, Chris. Well, we're going to have more fun now. Did you see the picture? This is from BBC.com. Of Neptune appearing in the waves during a storm in New Haven. What? No, look it up. Look that up. And everybody out there in podcast land, look it up. This the, the article is actually titled "Neptune Appears in the Waves During Storm in New Haven." There is a picture there, and you can clearly see a face in that wave. Oh please! I'm looking at this right now. There's a face there. Clearly defined eyes, nose, and mouth. That is computer generated. That Come is on. an actual There's... picture. 
That is no picture. That is an actual picture. There's no way that's a picture. Uh, do you believe that is made it? an appearance on the, hold on, on the east Sussex coast during a storm. The sighting of the face of the Roman god of water was captured by BBC photographer Jeff Overs over New Haven on Tuesday. He took the picture as waves crashed over the harbor wall in the storm. The sighting seems to be an example of paradelia, whatever that is, when an image is seen in an otherwise random and ambiguous visual pattern. Mr. Rover Overs took said took the photo at about nine BST, whatever that is. British something standard time. British standard time. At high tide and winds at more than fifty mile per hour. It became a popular location for photographers because of the sea boils and the high wind against the seawall. The way you think the about this flash You you see that face in that wave. It's the same as seeing an image in the clouds. That is exactly the same thing. And that's why I believe this is a legitimate picture. I'm going to screenshot this so I can blow the image up. Somebody might need to blow you up. You know what? You know what? That reminds me of an old SCTV skit. For anybody out there who's never watched SCTV, go look up celebrity blow-ups from SCTV. They made me laugh every time. He blowed up real good. You remember that? You remember Celebrity Smackdown on MTV, don't you? Of course I do. Do whatever Mariah Carey and Celine Dion fought? I would not have watched that one if you'd have paid me. So that looks, that's kind of spooky looking. It looks like Poseidon in the waves. No, Neptune. Oh, same thing. Poseidon and Neptune are different gods of the sea. One's Greek, one's Roman. I wonder. Hmm. I want to do some reading up on Greek mythology. But. But by God, you can see his lips, his nose, his eyes, his beard. That's really weird. Wow. Huh. But moving on, did you see the nominations that came out today? I did, and I knew you just wanted to talk about them, but I didn't even look at them. So, outstanding. Com- I'm gonna go over just like some of the the big categories. Outstanding comedy series: Ted Lasso, Blackish, Hacks, The Flight Attendant, Cobra Kai, The Kaminsky Method, Pen Fifteen, and Emily in Paris. And of course, Pen Fifteen is written to look like penis, but I've never watched the show, so I don't know. Outstanding drama series: Lovecraft Country, The Boys, Bridgerton, The Crown. The Handmaid's Tale, The Mandalorian, Pose, and This Is Us. Outstanding limited series, The Queen's Gambit, Mayor of Easttown, WandaVision, I May Destroy You, and The Underground Railroad. Now, I did see on Twitter where um, that um, WandaVision racked up 23 nominations, I think it was. Yeah, it got a lot, and honestly, I don't know why. The first three episodes, as we discussed, were rather boring and not explaining anything. And then it got better as it went along. But I would not have considered that a high contender for an Emmy. Of course, I also didn't know that Cobra Kai was supposed to be a comedy series. Because 
I always thought the Karate Kid was a drama. Here it is. Congra- this is WandaVision on Twitter. Congratulations to the cast of the crew of Marvel Studios' WandaVision on its 23 Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Limited Series. That's what WandaVision tweeted, at, tweeted out today. But of all the shows... Hex and The Flight Attendant are the only two in the Outstanding Comedy Series that I've wanted to see, both of which are on HBO Max. Outstanding Drama Series, I'm only one episode into Season 2 of The Boys. I've seen all of The Mandalorian. Never watched Pose. I've seen all of The, all of the Boys. And then Limited Series, I've seen WandaVision. Mayor of Easttown, I've heard, is really good, but I've not seen anything on it, so I've not watched it. I know Mayor of Easttown is also on the HBO Max. So, lots of surprises in this. Like, The Boys was also, to me, a surprise. I didn't think it was what I've seen of it. I didn't think it was worthy of an Emmy nomination. The Boys is actually phenomenal. You need to watch that. I've watched the first season. It just... I, the second season I just haven't phenomenal. had the desire to get into it. Now... I want to get through it and then be ready for season three and see if um, Jensen Ackles can do anything Jensen with Ackles. it. But yeah. it's it's not pulling me back. So I don't know. I'm still a few episodes behind on Clarice too. But yeah, I mean, no, I'm not going. Like I said, I'm not going to go through everything on the Emmy nominations. But there's a lot here and. Hamilton got a lot of nominations. And of course it did. I will say I enjoyed Hamilton, but when I saw the trailer for what was the name of that one that he just did that's on HBO Max or was on HBO Max, In the Heights, the music sounded exactly the same as what Hamilton's music sounded. I don't know about that. For me, it did. And so... That kind of hurts Hamilton in my eyes. I would like to see Jonathan Graff win the Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Limited Series or Movie because his role in Hamilton was easily my favorite part of it. I don't know if you remember him, but he was the king who came out. He was very comical. And I would like to if see him If you're talking about Hamilton... Go ahead and call me a horrible person. Call me all the names of the books. I've never seen it. I swear. Hamilton was good. I want to see the stage play in New York. Didn't we review Hamilton together? I know I reviewed it. No, we did did not. We haven't done Hamilton. I know I did. Well, you might have done it, but I didn't do it. By the way, have you been keeping up with Loki? Yes, I have. And spoiler for everybody out there, but my favorite is Alligator Loki. I love little Alligator Loki. Okay. How can you not? I'm liking it so far. I enjoy it. It's it's probably my favorite of the Marvel shows now. It's, um, it has taken a different spin than I thought it was going to take, so... And it's, it's not making him a hero, which is also a good thing. Yeah, because I want him to stay bad. And 
I don't like it when they focus on the villain as the hero of the show either. But anyway, but that's that's a random thought. That's all coming to my entertainment news now because Emmy's brought us there. It was announced. This is from ComicBook.com. Netflix and Mark Miller announced King of Spies. And you know, Netflix bought Miller World, I think a few years ago. Yeah. And it's mentioned well, it right here okay. in the article. Let's, let's, let's pump the brakes for a second. What's Miller World? Remember the, what was the name of the show with Josh Dumill that we just watched? The superhero show. I'm sure it's in this. I can't, I don't know why I can't think of the name of it right offhand. But... But anyways, what do you mean we just watched it? We just watched it last week? No, we just watched it and reviewed it not too long ago. It was a Netflix series that got canceled after one season. I'm going to go to your Twitter wall right quick. Well, it's been a while, so... Well, I'm sure it's on there somewhere. But anyways, Mark Miller's next comic book with Netflix has been announced in the form of King of Spies, a new original series that will begin as a graphic novel from the Eisner Award nominee. An official press release from the streamer, who owns the Miller World imprint outright after an acquisition a few years ago, called King of Spies an, quote, original Netflix property, and revealed that the artwork from the graphic novel will be, quote, based on designs created by the team at Netflix. No artist was announced to be attached to the project, but the promise of a, quote, superstar artist chosen from the comic book world. The new series is officially described as follows. In King of Spies, Britain's greatest secret agent faces his deadly en deadliest enemy yet, his own mortality. Diagnosed with a brain tumor and six months to live, the retired Sir Roland Kane looks around at the world he's saved so many times and feels he can't leave us in such a mess. There's greed and corruption at every level, untouchable despots he's, he was forbidden to go near, and a system he just doesn't believe in anymore. He wants to use his remaining time to make a difference with his particular set of skills and repair the damage he did in his private life at the same time. The most dangerous man in the world has gone rogue, and he knows where all the bodies are buried. Now it's time to go after the real monsters. So... says, King of Spies marks the fourth original series created by Miller since his partnership with Netflix was announced, with previous titles including The Magic Order, Prodigy, and Sharky the Bounty Hunter. Okay, I'm not seeing that show, by the way. You'll know what I'm talking about. I see you retweeted a horse scratching its butt on a fence. Hey, that was fun. <laughs> what are you doing doing that for? Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and let it go. Let it be. So, anyways. I'm trying to look it up real quick. Because Josh Janelle was the... Oh, Jupiter's Legacy. That's what the name of it was. Okay. Now you remember, he was the the father of the children, he and his wife had children, and they both had superpowers, and the girl yeah. was a, a lot of issues going on there, for those who haven't watched it, and 
Oh, the whole family had issues. Yeah, but I still would love to have seen a period piece with the older heroes back in the day. Because I would like to have seen their early adventures. But next up, also from comicbook.com, Phil Lamar suits up as Green Lantern in Superhero Diaries series. It says, You can't have a Green Lantern discussion without including Phil Lamar's iconic Jon Stewart, who many fans have came to love thanks to Lamar's delightful portrayal in the animated Justice League and Justice League Unlimited series. Now Lamar is actually suiting up for real, as he will reprise his role as a lantern for the Digital Sky and Scott Zuckerin's created Superhero Diaries, a new superhero comedy web series that features a mix of superhero action, satire, and of course, comedy. Lamar joins a cast that includes Patrick Bristow, uh, Don Jeans, Hannah Cat Jones, and more. The series debuts on YouTube July 21st. So we might have to be checking that one out. It does have a picture. I wonder if it's going to be YouTube TV or is it just going to be YouTube YouTube? I'm pretty sure it's just going to be YouTube. Because it's video on demand and YouTube TV is live TV, isn't it? No, YouTube TV is something you subscribe to. Which is live. You have to pay for. It's live TV. No, it's more than just live TV. You have access to all the tons of movies on there, too. Well, you have access to all that stuff without the live TV. And you don't have to pay for it. No, you, no, you don't. Yeah, you Not do. the movies on there. you got to pay your rent. No, uh-uh. Yeah. There, like there are movies that you pay up, your rent. Look up late. But they're not included in the YouTube the TV either, I don't believe. Yes, they, they include that. One of my friends is pays for YouTube. Well, I ain't paying for YouTube. For it. I ain't paying for YouTube. Plain and simple. I ain't paying for it either. But they I do have paying. a picture of... I've got so many subscriptions right now, I can't keep up with them. They do have a picture of Phil Lamar in costume, and it's only from his chest up, and he's got his arm extended with the rain, and the rain is obviously enhanced. But what they have in the picture looks really good. So, I definitely will be watching this, so we may have to review it after July 21st. Because okay. it looks like it's got potential. You're and it is a comedy, so. But that brings us up to uh, another thing they're doing. This is from Screen Rant, so I don't know. Sometimes Screen Rants are all right on, sometimes they're way off the mark. But anyways, this is their article. Zack Snyder's Justice League 2 storyboards to release as motion comic. Hold on. Jack Snyder's Zack League, Snyder. Justice League. Yeah, whatever. Part 2? Yes. He already had his storyboards done for Justice League 2. Because, you know, there was a plan in place for three, F three films. Yeah. The article reads, Zack Snyder, Jim Lee, and Jeff Johns' storyboards for Justice League 2 will be released as a motion comic made by fans. Following Snyder's departure from Justice League's production... The theatrical release of Justice League, as in quotes because it's Joss Whedon, the, and the resulting fan campaign to release the Snyder Cut, 
Zack Snyder's Justice League made its way to HBO Max earlier this year. The four-hour epic fulfilled Snyder's vision for the film and gave audiences a taste of his grand plan for the DC Extended Universe, with Justice League being part of a planned trilogy of movies. Despite the critical and commercial acclaim of Snyder's Justice League, Warner Brothers DC has largely ignored cries to restore his universe. The future of the Snyderverse remains confined to information revealed during interviews, leaked pieces of concept art, and other tid tidbits divulged on social media. Justice League 2 would have continued towards the apocalyptic nightmare timeline teased in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice and in the epilogue of Justice League. Storyboards for Justice League 2 and 3 have revealed Snyder's plans to include Lex Luthor's in Justice League slash Legion of Doom, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Batman, and Flash villains, which was teased in the mid-credits scene of the theatrical cut. So you were asking me about the Legion of Doom earlier. There you go. They were planning yeah. for future installments. But it's gonna be, but it's gonna be a cartoon. No, it's gonna be a motion comic, which is that's a cartoon. Not really. If you'd ever watch a motion comic, they're they're their own thing. The best thing okay, I can describe them to is if, if you ever Have I saw anything that you forced me to watch as a motion comic. If you ever saw the animated shows from the '60s that Marvel did with Iron Man and Captain America, those were almost motion comics. But I'm gonna look this. is there a motion comic on uh, YouTube? I don't know if there is or not. Probably because there's been many done. But the, the thing with a motion comic is it takes a still picture and moves uh, some things inside. Right so. here, here's, right here, I just typed in motion comic on YouTube, and here's an hour, and it's called The Batman, gotta forgive me, I can't read that, The Batman 3 Joker's number one motion comic. Well, I know there was... Uh, Spider-Woman motion comic that Marvel did. There was Logan that was done. You need to turn that sound down. It's just I'm rattling. turning the phone down. Shh. Okay, this is kind of different. See, it's not exactly animation. It's um really weird looking. Yeah, it's it's basically you have the still picture from a comic. And then motion inside that still picture. Yeah, it's moving. Yeah. So. This is that playing right now. Yeah, it's I've I've seen motion comics before, and there some of them are really good, some of them are really boring. So, it basically I'm depends. I'm not so on, sure if I'm gonna enjoy this or not. You probably wouldn't, but I will for the seeing where the story was gonna go. I mean, see the way it's doing it? I don't, yeah. I don't know if I like that or not. Yeah, that's what I expect it to be. Huh. So. That's just... Anyway, that's Batman, which is called Three Jokers Number One Motion Comic. And apparently there is a... Oh. Captain America Winter Soldier one as well. Motion Comic. Yeah, there's a lot of motion comics. Oh, here's an hour and 12 minutes called Batman Bad Blood. There was an animated movie that I believe I have of Bad Blood. Wow. I mean, it's... 
See you. Uh, my eyes, my eyes has been opened. I did not know this. There's a lot of stuff, and Marvel has a bunch of them too. The Watchmen was done as a motion comic. Um, the Spider Woman motion comic was really successful for Marvel. Here's one called Marvel Zombies Returns, motion comic fan film. It's been viewed 92,000 times. Well, that's fan film, though, so it's not going to be the same. Here's one called Absolute Carnage Comic. It's 36 minutes. And and granted, you don't know on YouTube if they're exactly legitimately produced by the company. Or if it's fan fiction or fan films made. Because people can take the comic and make them into a a motion comic if they want. If they have the skills. Now here is Ultimate Spider-Man. It's Venom motion comic film. It's an hour and 33 minutes on YouTube. Good. That was put up three months ago. So that's... Most likely it's fans doing them, but... This is a whole genre I've been opened up to. Chris, yep. what's up with this? See? Comics aren't just in comic books. They're all over the place. That's Justice League of America Danger. Here's one of our hour and a half motion comic. But anyways, you could go through every one on there and spend the rest of the time that we have, but we're going to move on. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. And there was... Like, I know X-Men had a motion comic that was released officially by, like, on Blu-ray. Spider-Woman was released on Blu-ray. I believe I've got Spider-Woman, and I think I've got the X-Men one. But there's all kinds of stuff out there. Watchmen had a motion comic. There's Batman Black and White, I think, was the motion comic that DC did. So there's lots of stuff out there that you can get. But the... The final news article that I have, and there are some spoilers here before I start reading it, so if you're not caught up with The Mandalorian from almost a year ago, spoiler warning. But this is from Star Wars... I've not seen The Mandalorian, so spill it. This is from StarWars.com. Special episode of Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian, explores... Luke Skywalker's return in Season 2 finale. So, for those who have seen it, you know Luke Skywalker came on, and Mark Hamill himself, they did a fantastic job of recreating his face because it's young Luke Skywalker, not Luke Skywalker as he is now. And he came in and saved little baby Grogu and took him away at the end of the episode. This... So let me get this straight. The real Mark Hamill played himself as Luke Skywalker. No. But that made he him voiced look himself. He voiced himself, but it was a definite body double because, no offense to Mark Hamill, but we all get older, we all get heavier, and Mark Hamill is heavier... So they had a body double and recreated his face to look like he did back in the 80s. But it was Mark Hamill's voice. Yes. Okay, just so I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. Yes. He voiced himself, but it was a body double and computer-generated face, I'm guessing. But they did a really good job on it. 
But this is what, it's just a couple paragraphs here to read, so I'm going to read this from StarWars.com. In last year's Season 2 finale of The Mandalorian, the appearance of a young Luke Skywalker was one of the biggest reveals and best-kept secrets of the acclaimed show thus far. Reaction to the episode was emotionally charged for many, deeply resonating with generations of fans who were elated to see the Jedi Master in his post-Star Wars Return of the Jedi Prime. The story of the cutting-edge technology used to bring Luke back is the subject of a special extra episode of Disney Gallery Star Wars The Mandalorian, debuting August 25th on Disney+. Making the season making of the season two finale is a behind the scenes look at making this of this celebrated chapter of the Mandalorian with a focus on the technology used for recreating Luke Skywalker. It delves into the collaborative process, including work working with Mark Hamill to create an authentic and fitting recreation and explores the immense pressure and responsibility the filmmakers had in bringing back one of the most important characters in film history. The Television Academy recognized the second season of The Mandalorian earlier today with 24 Emmy Award nominations, including Best Drama Series. So, on the heels of the Emmy nominations, we get news that the making of The Mandalorian finale is coming. And, honestly, that's going to be interesting, even if you haven't watched the series just as a special effects standpoint on how they recreated Luke Skywalker for it. So, now that... Well, I'm going to look that up. Now that you know... I wonder if that's going to be on YouTube. Uh, doubt it, because it's going to be on Disney+. Plus. I'm talking about just the actual little small video of him oh, on there. I don't know if it will or not. There's a, a picture on StarWars.com, but it's... The lightsaber's kind of shining green on his face, and he's got the hood over his eyes, so you can't really see who it is. But he does have the black glove, the whole deal. So. Luke Skywalker saves the Mandalorian and Grogu. Here it is. It is on YouTube. But It's a four-minute clip. Yeah, it, it was a good little scene there. You don't have to show it to me. I've already seen it, Paul. Well, I just want to make sure that that yeah, is the scene that you Yeah, that's the Mandalorian. Skip ahead there so you're not wasting all that time. But Okay, there's little Grogu. Yeah, yeah little you Grogu. gotta love little Grogu. How can you not love little baby Grogu? Here's the robots. The black robots. We'll just skip forward so you can see Luke Hamill, or Luke Skywalker. I'm seeing, everybody's like looking around. Oh, here he comes with the green lightsaber, kicking ass. Yep. There he is. Have you seen his face yet? Not yet. They're still just showing in the black robe. Because it takes a little, I think it's until he gets to Grogu before you see his face. Which is why I said skip ahead. They are inside... It's like they're fighting. Here he's still making his way through the hallway. You don't listen very well. I said skip ahead. I'm skipping ahead, damn it. Okay. Let's see. Grogu put his hands on the screen. Here's the Mandalorian. Oh, here he comes in. And he is like swarping that green saber everywhere. And Mandalorian and Grogu, here we go. And now he's like using the force against that robot and crushing him. Damn, I hear you. 
And now he's turning around. Grogu's turning around. Oh, cool. Have you seen him yet? Yeah, he's... Wow, he looks very young. They did a fantastic job recreating him. It look that's that's actually chilling. Is better wow. than young Michael Douglas in Ant Man. Yeah, Much that better was than that. um that was that was pretty good. I like that. I wanted so, to like that video. So that's the thing. We've we've never said Disney did not spend money on their shows. Because Disney is very definitely spending money on the effects for these shows. I'm very surprised by that. Really I am. Especially by that clip. And that's because, the other thing. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I've watched the first Mandalorian. And that very first show did not grab me. And I did not watch any more of them. It just did. Oh, you're missing out. Because I'm not going to say that it's a great show and that the stories are wonderful. But as far as an action show goes, it's really good. There's a lot of good action. I'll go back. I'll go back and look at it again. And... Don't watch it for the for the Mandalorian. Watch it for little baby Grogu, cause he's adorable. Oh, little baby Grogu. I'm gonna slap you. But anyways, <laughs> that that will bring us to the end of our news for this week. Unless you have anything real quick. You heard that Chris just threatened harm on me. Well, they didn't see what you were doing, so we'll we'll just move along. But I was gagging. I was like, gagging me with a spoonful of peanut butter. <laughs> but anyways, we have lost a few more this week. First up, William Smith. This is from The Hollywood Reporter. William Smith, action actor and star of Laredo and Rich Man, Poor Man, dies at 88. It does not list a cause of death that I'm seeing... Yeah, it says, Smith died Monday at the motion picture and television country house and hospital in Woodland Hills. His wife, Joanne Cervelli Smith, told The Hollywood Reporter she did not want to reveal the cause of death. But, it says, well, that's weird. He was with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Conan the Barbarian, spoke fluent Russian as a colonel in Red Dawn, uh, battled Jewel Brenner with the ball and chain in The Ultimate Warrior. Uh, he was a go-to guy when casting for biker films, starring in director Jack Starrett's Run, Angel, Run, and The Losers, in Angels Die Hard from Roger Corman's New World Pictures, in CC and Company starring Joe Namath and Anne Margaret, in Chrome and Hot Leather opposite Marvin Gaye, and in Gentle Savage and Eye of the Tiger. On NBC's Laredo, Smith starred as a gunfighter turned Texas Ranger Joe Riley during the Western's two seasons, and he joined CBS's original Hawaii Five-0 for its final year to portray Detective James Kimo Carew. ABC's Rich Man, Poor Man, which premiered in February 1976, was the first miniseries broadcast on American television and was an adaptation of the Irwin Shaw novel about two German-American brothers and their lives after World War II. So that actually okay, sounds really good. I want, I'm going to have to look at them and see if that's anywhere streaming. We got some breaking news, if you want it. What is it? The Senate Democrats announced agreement on $3.5 top-the-line 
for sweeping budget package. The Democrats of the Senate Budget Committee announced Tuesday, I mean, it just hit, that they have agreed on a top-of-the-line number of $3.5 trillion to spend in a wide-range package to serve as a resolution network to begin the budget reconciliation progress. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced the agreement after emerging from a late-night meeting at the U.S. Capitol flanked by Budget Chairman Bernie Sanders of Vermont and others in the committee. They said Schumer told reporters that the legislation will eventually have the 50 votes needed to pass the Senate. The story is now breaking, and more will be updated. We shall see what goes on there. But, but yeah, back to the rich man, poor man. The I I have said many times I love World War II stories, and even though this takes place after the events of World War II, it still sounds like something I'd be interested in, so I'm going to have to look up and see if Rich Man, Poor Man is playing anywhere and try and watch it. Because that's one thing I thought about the other day, too. Is, do you remember back in the, I guess starting in the 70s, maybe, they used to have the Sunday night movie and the Monday night movie where the network On CBS. Well, CBS, NBC, and ABC. They all three did them. They well, all... Uh, actually put together an original film and like there was a Dobie Gillis reunion movie there was one I think Rue McClanahan was it was in on NBC there I mean there was all kinds of made for TV movies and miniseries that could be a market like if you had a streaming service and had the rights to a lot of those which quite honestly, might be public domain rights. I don't know if they held on to the rights or not, but, like, Blind Faith with Joanna Kearns was a miniseries that I absolutely loved. I got introduced to it because of Mom wanting to watch it for Robert Urich, but it was the story of he was trying to kill his wife, and it was based on a true story. And I would love to see that one again. And I just know that CBS has agreed to bring back these Sunday night movies. It's supposed to be like coming on like eight o'clock on Sunday nights now. Yeah, but I think it's going to be. Back this. I think it's going to be theatrical films instead of made for TV. Yeah, movies. it's going to be like regular films. I bring. The, I think it's going to be their new fall lineup. I think it is. But I, I think that could be a market if somebody wanted to put together a streaming service of just classic TV movies. Would that not already be on Tubi? Well, some of them might be, but like there's some Joanna Kearns movies on Tubi, and IMDb TV has some stuff, but you know, it's. I'm sure there's a lot more out there that aren't getting played. But, but anyways, moving on. This is from Deadline. This was very sad news for me because I was very familiar with this actor. Charlie Robinson dies. Night Court and Buffalo Bill actor was 75. Of course, he played Mac on uh, Night Court, and he was married to a woman. I believe she was Vietnamese, and I think she was Quan Lee. But it says, his manager, Lisa DeSantis, told Deadline that Robinson died of cardiac arrest with multi-system organ failures due to septic shock and metastatic adenocarcinoma. Robinson racked up more than 125 TV and film credits, including an impressive five series regular roles. 
during a half-century career that stretched into 2021. He got his start guesting on such 1970s and 80s series as Canon, The White Shadow, Lou Grant, St. Elsewhere, and Hill Street Blues, and the sequel miniseries Roots the Next Generation. His first recurring role was on the short-lived NBC primetime soap Flamingo Road. But it would be Night Court that would really make him a household name. And Yeah, he also, it says right here, he also appeared in NCIS, House, and Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, I mean, he, was, he was phenomenal in Night Court. There's no two ways about it. Oh, I loved him. His, his little snappy comebacks that he had and that that sly smile that he had. Is playing anywhere? I don't know. It's another one that should go to HBO Max, but like Night Court and Murphy Brown, why are they not on HBO Max? Oh, I love me some Murphy Brown. Did, uh, get, did you watch any of the new episodes that they come out with during Trump being the president? I watched them all, and I bought the series when it went on sale on Vudu for four ninety nine. Love it. Murphy Brown was fantastic. He needs to come back with good quality episode streaming and HBO Max should be the place. Like Alice should also be on HBO Max. Like get some oh, of these classic shows on there. And I like Head of the Class, but I would think that Alice and Night Court and Murphy Brown and shows like that would have a bigger audience than Head of the Class and Head of the Class is on HBO Max. So let's get some of this stuff on there. Yeah, I just looked for Night Court on Tubi. It's not there. I wonder if it'd be on Peacock. Wasn't that on NBC? It's a Warner Brothers property, I believe. So HBO Max would be the one to get it. Unless they license it to somebody. Because HBO... Or Warner Brothers has licensed stuff to like the Roku channel. Because they had time tracks on the Roku channel at one point. So Growing Pains is another Warner Brothers property that was on Roku Channel. Man from Atlantis is another series that I would like to see added to the HBO Max. And it is digitized because they put it on DVD, and I believe it was streaming on the Warner Archives site when they had it. But that brings us to our final this week. A man that I enjoyed quite a bit in the ring. This also is from Deadline. Paul Orndorff dies. Wrestling legend known as Mr. Wonderful, who fought in first WrestleMania, was 71. His son Travis made the announcement Monday on Instagram where he has documented his father's recent health struggles. It is with great sadness that I announce the passing of my father, Paul Parlett Orndorff Jr., wrote the younger Orndorff. He is better known as Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff. And, I mean, his WWF run was phenomenal, but he was in Smoky Mountain Wrestling with Jim Cornette, had a really good feud with Ron Garvin in there, um, fantastic matches against Cactus Jack in WCW, so this was a man who definitely made a mark on me through the years, loved to see him in the ring, of course, Anybody who remembers the classic Saturday Night's Main Event Steel Cage match, there was Hogan and Orndorff. We all know Orndorff hit the floor first and Hogan lost, but those prejudiced referees gave the belt back to Hogan. 
Of saying, course. Saying it was a tie. No, Orndorff hit the floor first. I believe Bobby Heenan every time. But besides that, this man, he was absolutely phenomenal in the ring. His pile driver was great. And Did, um, I actually got to meet he? him a few years ago at WrestleCade. That's what I was going to say. Didn't we meet him? Yeah. And it was it was sad seeing him like that because he was having to hold his arm when he did the number one finger, but he was very nice and personable, and he, like I said, his his days with Piper, Piper and Orndorff were a fantastic team, main evented the first WrestleMania, the, so, just so much great stuff to go back and enjoy with him, and hopefully you do, because a lot of it's on Peacock, I'm sure they'll probably have if they don't already, they'll probably have a best of the WWF featuring Paul Orndorff due to his passing. Uh, they have a tweet from the Iron Cheek on here. Paul Orndorff, my brother, you were the toughest. We train together, we ride together. You were excellent, Bubba. I am so sad. I love you forever. Rest in peace. So. Aww. And there, you can go to Travis Orndorff's page posts and see Paul Orndorff has had quite a bad run lately so on one hand I'm glad that he's out of that misery but it's still one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time that we have lost and somebody that I've always enjoyed seeing in the ring so and if you want to hear more I'm sure the Jim Cornette podcasts will be really diving into Paul Orndorff's career and Jim Cornette would be the perfect one for it because he is a wrestling historian. His mind is brilliant as far as wrestling goes. So definitely check out Paul, uh, Jim Cornette's podcast in the next week because uh, like I said, I am sure he's going to have a fantastic tribute to Paul Orndorff. And with that, we yeah. have finished the first half. We will be back. We reviewed an episode of Gilligan's Island and Lethal Weapon and, of course, the Donner Cut of Superman 2 as we go into reviewing some of Richard Donner's great films in tribute to him. Stay tuned, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. First up, let's go with this past weekend's box office, which, if you saw the news, this is the biggest box office weekend since the pandemic began. Really? Really. And the take of the number one film really surprised me, but we'll get to that when we get there. Down from 9 to 10 is Zola with 620,000. Down from 8 to 9, The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It, $655,324. After six weeks and being on HBO Max, almost $64 million take. Down from 7 to 8, Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, $1,262,805 in its fifth weekend. Number 7, down from 5, the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, 
$1,630,927 in its fourth weekend with just over $35 million. Still holding in at number six for the, at least the second week after seven weeks in release. Almost $81 million grossed, $2,370,111 over the weekend. Disney's Cruella. Now available, I'm actually amazed by that. Now available to watch on Paramount Plus, down from four to five, A Quiet Place Part Two. Seventh weekend, $3,155,430. Grand total, $150,849,725. Can I put you on pause a second? What? Is this world totals or is this United National. States totals? National. Huh? This is the U.S. National. box office. I just wonder what that was on the world totals. But that's already, in the pandemic, almost $151 million after seven weeks. That's that is huge money. Mind-blowing, yeah. Down from three to four in its second week. Almost $28 million gross total. $7,144,485 over the weekend. The Forever Purge. Down from two to three, a film that's also available on Peacock, The Boss Baby Family Business. Second weekend, $8,876,235, with nearly $35 million in the two weekends. Down from first to second, F9 The Fast Saga, $11,436,785, with nearly $142 million after three weeks. That is, that is so stupid. I don't understand. People have no taste. Well, there's, there's somebody for everything. That's the whole thing. And number one, it's not a surprise that this film debuted in number one. But being the character that it is really does surprise me that it made this much money. Of course, we're talking about the MCU's first film since the pandemic. And that's a big key right there. First film oh. since the pandemic from the MCU, Black Widow, but its weekend tally, $80,366,312. Holy! Almost $80.5 million dollars in its opening weekend. $80 million? Yep. I wonder what the world total is for that movie so far on the opening weekend. Can we look that up? Uh, you can. I I don't know what, what it is. What website do I go to? I look up on Box Office Mojo, but it's just domestics. Oh, wait. Here. Worldwide. I wonder. Black Widow's at number nine worldwide. $165,529,452. In its first weekend. Well, I don't know how long it's been out overseas, but it's also available for 30 bucks rental on Disney+. Plus. Let's see here. Um, what, 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 remind me that movie's name again, I'm sorry. Black Widow. Black Widow. Black and Widow. I wonder what the budget is. On Box Office Mojo, it's showing that the domestic total is now up to over $87.5 million. And the foreign gross is $78 million. So, okay, had a video, okay, it hasn't hit budget yet. The two, it was $200 million on a budget. 
but it's going to blow past that this week. Well, the worldwide gross is already less than $35 million away, so... Oh, it's going to blow Second by weekend this week. in the U.S. will most likely get there. And like I said, it is the first MCU film since before the pandemic began to be that released in theaters. So it's that's part of it. Okay. I want to go see this in the movies. I won't be going to the movies to see it. You, you've been vaccinated. And... If you saw my post that I've shared on Facebook just the other day, six people who had been vaccinated attended a wedding, and everybody at the wedding was vaccinated. That was a requirement of the wedding. Six of them contracted COVID-19. One of them passed away. Being vaccinated, does, being vaccinated does not prevent you from getting it it helps prevent just you having bad symptoms if they got the Pfizer and Moderna did it say it, I think it was a biotech that it was I can't remember I, it, I read the article earlier this evening but so yes when I go out I still wear a mask wherever I go yes whenever I go out I try to stay away from people yes I still practice hand hygiene I don't wear my mask. I do. I don't trust people, especially people around here. But I do not go near people. I stay away from them. And I also sanitize my hands like crazy. I do everything that I can to prevent getting it again. And I wish everybody else would do the same. But like we've said... They'd rather believe politicians than to actually believe facts. But that brings us to our tribute to Richard Donner. And first up, I'm going to start with an article from comicbookresources.com. Obviously, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to do the top ten. But it's Richard Donner's ten best movies according to IMDb. Number 10, Maverick. Number 9, Lady Hawk. Number 8, Radio Flyer. Number 7, Scrooged. And I would think Scrooged would be higher on the list personally because it's a fantastic film. Number 6, Lethal Weapon 2. Number 5, Superman the Motion Picture. Number four, and this one is surprising that it's this high. I've never seen it, but The Omen came in at number four. I've never seen that movie either. And number three, Superman 2, The Donner Cut, which we will be reviewing at the end of this segment. Number two, the film we'll be reviewing before Superman 2, The Donner Cut, Lethal Weapon. And number one... And how can you deny this one? The Goonies is number one, according to IMDb for Richard Donner Films. Dude, I almost said, let's do the Goonies movie, but I was going to wait for it to do for Halloween, because I want to do Goonies at Halloween. Well, the Goonies, we, we discussed it last week, gave us 
the fantastic two-part video from Cindy Lauper. I mean, chunk, sloth, mouth. Pinches of power! Pinches of power! It's just, there's so much greatness to that film. It's one it never gets old. And just a fantastic story. Even if they are foul-mouthed little kids, but that's beside the point. So, I want to go see Corey Hayes. No, Corey Feldman. I probably will, because he's coming to the Queen City Con. Him and... I know I'm going to mess up the name, but uh, something like Ki Hui Kong or something like that, the one who did the Pinchers of Power, I can't remember what his name was on Goonies, and he was in Indiana Jones as well. He's also oh, going yeah. to be there. So, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the Queen City Con now. Got two Goonies. Hi. I have the original VHS cassette tape with the box of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I want to see, I want to see if he can sign it for me. I've got the um, the trilogy set on VHS somewhere. Oh, well, see, I've got it before they even come out with the trilogy set. I've got each one as it come out. i got to find out how much it's going to cost to get them to autograph because the Goonies are definite gotta get yes you, like I said I wanna go too you can, let me know how much it is you can pretty much bet that Josh Brolin will not be there because his Marvel storylines have gotten him really big so I don't know if they'll be able to afford a star of his quality Sean Astin but when they posted that they got Corey Feldman, that surprised me. Because Corey Feldman is still somewhat of a name that can draw money. So Yeah. Sean Aston, I love me some Sean Aston though. Well he was in Stranger Things, so again, don't know what his cost is, but it'd be great to have a a group signing of the Goonies and pay one price to get everybody. I don't know if Chunk will be there. I would love to see Chunk. And if you have not seen Chunk lately, look him up. Because he is very fit from what I saw. Like, he's not the fat little boy now. anymore. He cannot do the truffle shuffle. None of that. But Chunk was probably the best part of the film. But it was only fake vomit and I didn't mean to hurt anybody. 35 years later, the Goonies is now, the chunk from Goonies is now a hunk. Let's see this. Jeff Cohen. Wow, that does not look anything yeah. like him. I told you, he looks a lot different now. He is, he looks really good. Like I said, there's no more truffle shuffle. Uh, I love the Goonies and like I said it's, it's one that never grows old and I mean you got Mama Fratelli who was also in two episodes of Wonder Woman come on now what more do you need yeah so it's 
So yeah, I, I definitely agree with that at number one for Richard Donner films. But let's just go over his directing though here. The last film for him to direct was 16 Blocks, which I mentioned last week. Fantastic film, and I'm not a big Bruce Willis fan, but I really enjoyed that movie. So for him to go out as a director on that one was a good choice because it was a really good movie. Uh, conspiracy Theory. The story alone was fantastic. Then you add Julia Roberts in there. Unfortunately, Mel Gibson, which we'll be talking about again later, but Mel Gibson as an actor has been hurt so bad in my eyes because of his stupidity through the years here lately. Okay, just keep that mouth shut. Well, he can't. But he's just a lot of hate there. But, and... but you gotta admit, in that Lethal Weapon, he's a damn good actor in that Lethal Weapon. Well, God, he's good. I used to like him a lot, but like I said, him opening his mouth too many times was detrimental. I believe I saw Assassins, which was also directed by um, Richard Donner. Maverick, I know I saw, and I have many times said that Maverick is one of the few westerns that I actually enjoyed because it's a comedy and it makes it a different character altogether. We talked about last week the three episodes of Tales from the Crypt that he did. Dig That Cat, He's Real Gone, The Ventriloquist Dummy, and Showdown. And I remember the Ventriloquist Dummy very well. And I remember the name Dig That Cat, He's Real Gone. I know I've seen that episode a few times. Right offhand, I'm not sure what Showdown was. Uh, Radio Flyer, which we just mentioned, was in 1992. Uh... The Toy, I didn't, that's one that kind of surprised me from him, where Richard Pryor was bought for oh, a yeah, toy for the, the rich kid, and it's been a long time since I've seen that one, but it was one of Richard Pryor's much cleaner films. Um, TV, he did three episodes of Kojak. Uh, three episodes oh, wow. of Sons and Kojak. Daughters. Uh, two episodes of The Streets of San Francisco. Four episodes of Canon. Nightside TV movie in 1973. So at least in 1973 they had TV movies. I don't know if it was the Sunday night at the movies or whatever, but they at least had TV movies back then. Uh, the Bold Ones, The New Doctors, he did three episodes did one episode of Ironside, Cades County, he did three episodes, a TV show called The Sixth Sense, he directed one episode, uh, The Banana Splits Adventure Hour, we mentioned last week, was three episodes, The Wild Wild West, we mentioned last week, he directed three episodes, The Felony Squad, he did three episodes, uh, let's see, Perry Mason, three episodes. The Man from Uncle, he did four episodes, six episodes of The Twilight Zone, which I wish I would have picked one of those too, but I just didn't have time to get it in, and I figured you probably wouldn't either. And a lot more here, Wanted Dead or Alive, there were six episodes, The Red of Young Show was five episodes, so his 
his first directing credit was in 1960, the Zane Grey Theater, So Young, The Savage Land. But he came a long way from his TV directorials. And that's where we're going to start with this tribute. Because he directed three episodes of Gilligan's Island. And I picked the first of his three that he directed. Or no, I guess it was the last of his three that he directed. Because it was 1965, the other two were 1964. But it's called St. Gilligan and the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 20. IMDb says of it, The women on the island feel disrespected, so they decide to go off on their own without the help of the men. But which side will cave in first and admit that they need or miss the other? This episode has a 6.9 out of 10 rating on IMDb. And it is classic Gilligan's Island. There's only seven actors in the entire show. Because, of course, that was the common thing, was just those seven appearing in most of the episodes. There were episodes that had guest stars, but overall, those seven were in. And, of course, looking over the cast list, we are down to one original member of Gilligan's Island still living. And that's Tina Louise, who played Ginger. And this episode, I gotta say, is really, really dated and very chauvinistic. Like, basically, this episode was saying the woman's place is in the kitchen and the men's place is going to be. I was dying. I was dying the whole time watching that. I was like, it's very, very dated. But it was a product of I mean, the way uh, Thurston Howell was talking to the women. Really? Yep. You can't get away with that today. And, I mean, it's it's classic Gilligan. It's it's mindless fun. It's cornball-y. It was cute, yes, and I... You know, you got to remember that this was produced back here in a whole different time when, you know, women were at home. You know, they were making, they, they were homemakers. This is back in the 60s. They were staying at home. They weren't career women. They weren't going out making a living. They were the ones raising the children and fixing the supper and waiting for the men to come home. And, and I think this is probably really started at the beginning of the women's empowerment movement, was it? Where, it could um, be. <laughs> let me see the air date if I can. February thirteenth, nineteen sixty-five. It first aired February thirteenth, nineteen sixty-five. So I know the burn the bra movement was the late sixties. So women were starting to probably be more open their eyes. I guess so. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. But, but, yeah, this episode was pretty bad. Uh, it was yeah. funny. It was cute. I mean, the way they were trying to swing the hammer and helping each other try to swing the hammer to try to hit the first, first pole down in the ground to make their hut when they broke off from the rest of them. And they were constantly missing it, and it took all three of them to swing it. <laughs> well, I mean, cute. that's... See, that, I don't consider that bad. I consider that a staple of Gilligan's Island. Because that's basically what kind of the the stories were, and it was 
it was what it was. And Gilligan's Island was a fantastic series. And has its place in television history for a reason. And unfortunately, due to a CBS executive's wife wanting Gunsmoke back on the air, we did not get more seasons of Gilligan's Island. But what we have is phenomenal. Yeah, this might not be the best episode, but that's more because of the, the plot line than it is the quality of the show. I gotta tell you, this is my first time watching Gilligan's Island, and I can't tell you when. But whenever I started watching, you know, the skipper to the millionaire and his wife, and they're going through the whole song, the movie star, and I was like, oh my god, this is bringing back such good memories. Oh, I, I absolutely love Gilligan's Island, which is why I bought the series on Voodoo. I've got the series on DVD. It, it never does get old for me. And who doesn't love Gilligan? If you don't love Gilligan, you didn't watch Gilligan. Because it's just silly, mindless fun. And that's what it was supposed to be. But It is. But, the, I mean, even Weird Al Yankovic... But don't ask me to rate this, this episode. Don't ask me to do it. Well, we will skip the rating, but... It, I mean, we're trying to tribute. I'm not gonna be. I, I think we should could rate, rate the whole series instead of this episode. Well, maybe the the reason I picked this one was because of the title. I thought it was gonna be one of the dream sequence episodes, which were usually yeah. really good episodes. Like, I don't know if you remember any of the dream sequences, but there was the one where Gilligan was Jack and the Beanstalk, and. The, the one where Gilligan turned into a vampire. Those were some of my favorite episodes. Were the ones where they did the whole dream sequence. I don't remember any of those. But more than likely, I did see them. I mean, I was a kid probably when I watched it. So I really don't really remember. Oh, so. You need to go back and watch some Gilligan then. Because I love the show. One of the things I always loved was the giant spider it was this giant spider that basically moved forward and backwards. And its eight legs just went up and down as it walked. Well, so-called walked. So it's like these legs that are just moving up and down. And the spider moves forward and the spider moves backwards. It was really bad effects, but it was so great. That is ringing a bell with me. That rang a bell with me. Because it was something about the spider was guarding the cave... And I think somebody got trapped inside the cave because the spider was there. And it was it was just, again, silly, mindless fun that was great. Because basically nothing in Gilligan's Island was realistic. Let's just face it. But that was the whole joy of it, is just the fantasy. Well, see, at the very beginning of it, whenever it says a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour, okay, that would have been an hour and a half out into the ocean and an hour and a half back. That's a three-hour tour. I thought, where would they get on this, you know, uncharted, deserted island an hour and a half away? That's not uncharted. I mean, how realistic is that? Well, no, the... I mean... The trip wasn't necessarily three hours. It's not a three-hour tour. Yeah, it was a tour. But the weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. 
if not for the courage of the fearless crew, the minnow would be lost. The minnow would yeah, be lost. Yeah, but they were within. They were within two hours of land of where they took off from easily. I'm have a hard until, time believing that they was on a deserted island two hours away. Well, but still, until the storm hits, the weather started getting rough. The tiny you ship don't was see tossed. The logic behind. It's but, logic. The the three hour tour was what was scheduled. It was not the actual what? trip. I know, I know, so, but what I'm saying is So that's what you have to look at. Because you're saying it was only that, three hours, they couldn't have been that far. They could have gotten very far on the storm. I'm talking about in the age of planes. There was planes back then. There, I mean they had all sorts of planes and boats that could I mean I'm sorry, but anyway. I know it's a it's a fan, yeah, uh, anyway, I was just I started thinking about that whenever there's, you know, listening to the theme song. I went, no, 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 wait a minute. There's boats, there's planes, there's sonar, there's everything back then. They could have easily found that. Um, <coughs> let's think about a few years ago with the plane that crashed that they took over a yeah, year to find Yeah, but that's in the Indian Ocean. Same thing. <coughs> More people would have probably been deserted, looking for that plane than were looking for island. the minnow. Not a deserted island. But more people would have been looking for the plane than would have been looking for the minnow. I guess, whatever. So, see, you're trying to make it worse than it actually was. That part of the story, I can believe. I can't. It's the... All the other things that this, the professor was able to do on that island. That He's constantly doing stuff. It's like, all, I mean, anyways. And all these guest stars would just arrive randomly on the on the island. And they, they'd leave, but they wouldn't leave. Well, they, they usually gave a reason for why they didn't get to go. I know. But anyways. But yeah, it's... I don't think we need to spend any more time on this. It's Gilligan, and I love Gilligan. I will always love Gilligan. I've never figured out why Tina Louise had such an issue with Gilligan's Island, but she refuses to talk about it anymore. It, that's why it was a surprise when they did Roseanne, where she actually appeared on Roseanne in the Gilligan's Island episode, but she portrayed Roseanne, because Roseanne portrayed Ginger in the Gilligan's Island skit. So, Jackie was Gilligan, and Gilligan was Jackie, and Dan was a skipper, and I can't remember who, and Mark might have been the professor. I can't remember for sure. It's been a while since I've seen it. But I know Roseanne was Ginger, Jackie was Gilligan, and Dan was a skipper. And at the end, they came back with the characters that were still alive, I believe Marianne was on it. I know Tina Louise was in it. Uh, Bob Denver was in it. They actually portrayed the cast members of Roseanne that were portraying them on Gilligan's Island. So, it was a fun little episode, even though I really lost a lot of faith with Roseanne through the years because of her stupidity. But that episode I will give credit to. So, again... It's Gilligan. I love Gilligan. So, watch it. And that moves us on to Paul's pick, which is Lethal Weapon. 
I'm only going by IMDb this week. I don't have anything else pulled up. But IMDb ranks at 7.6 out of 10. Paul, you've picked it. You go ahead with it. Um, this is, um, I mean, who hasn't seen this movie by now? Um, uh, came out in 1987. Um, it's, uh, I'm just going to read what, what it says here. Uh, two newly paired cops who complete opposites must put aside their differences in order to catch a gang of, uh, of drug smugglers. And it, it goes into, um, just the zaniness of the two getting paired together. One's super crazy, which is Mel Gibson's part, and one is super level-headed, which is um, uh, oh god, which is Danny Glover's part. I cannot remember his name. So it's just the meshing of their two personalities. And if if anybody has seen this movie, they'll know what kind of good actors these two are. I mean. Uh, who ever dreamed about putting them together in this movie? I mean, well, of course the director did, but I mean, it's it's an instant classic. Uh, the the acting in it is on point. I, I mean, at some point, I think Mel Gibson kind of goes a little bit over the top, just a little bit, but he does address. Um, I like that he does address uh, um, suicide uh, in this movie. Um, Say you know that you know he needed help, and I do like that he addressed that inside the movie. And for anybody who has actually fought suicide intentions, knows what kind of hard thing that is. And I like that he did that inside this movie. But um, riddled with all sorts of um, action, it's not a, there's not a sleepy part in the movie. Lots of guns, lots of Anyway, I enjoyed the movie. I think this is probably, what, the 10th time I've seen the movie? Well, it's the first anyway, time. It's, in... co- it's constantly coming on on, the mo- on on television. Almost, you know, on every TNT, it's all the time coming on. So it's a, it's a really good movie. I enjoyed it. Oh, I was just looking over the cast list, and first up, i got to say, this one amuses me to no end. I don't know who he is. But the character, Gary Busey? no, the character of drug dealer number three was played by Blackie Dammit. B l a c k i e d a m m e t t. That is the actor's okay. name. So I'm that spinning through the actors. Hold on, it's down at the bottom on IMDb. Down at the bottom. Yeah, the bottom of the list. It's the second to last name. But, but the the Here's other the, the other cast that was in there, I did not realize. I knew I recognized her. Did not realize that was Darlene Love, playing Danny Glover's wife in this film. Had no clue. Blackie, damn it! Wow. I'm telling you, that's just a great name. <laughs> Well, apparently you can, because I'm sure that's not his real name. I hope it's not. But, of course, Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, the stars of it. I had forgotten all about Gary Busey being in this. And Gary Busey 
is one of the most phenomenal guys to play someone insane, and he really didn't get to shine in this movie. I was really disappointed in that. Like, he has been in some movies where he just shines fantastically, especially when he plays crazy. And do you know what one of my you know one of my favorite Gary Busey films is? And I hope we're gonna did we do it last Halloween? Silver Bullet. I don't think Silver so. Silver Bullet. That is my favorite. We gotta do that this Halloween. It's probably the best werewolf movie ever from Stephen King. It is. It's a damn good movie. That's a, I remember watching that movie when I was a teenager with my friends sitting in like in the total dark room. And that just really, really did me in. The box office budget was $15 million. Opening weekend, just under $7 million. The U.S. gross was $65,207,127, with a worldwide gross of $120,207,127. So the worldwide brought in another fifty-five million. It looks like. And another thing, what I liked about this movie is, if something exploded, it really exploded. It wasn't CGI. Well, this was real. I do believe a lot of it was models too, though. Well, yeah. I'm saying it was it was real explosion. Yeah, the house was not a model. I don't think, but some of the stuff was, which. And then Superman 2 used models a lot, too, and some of it you could tell. Yeah, some I've got something to tell you about Superman 2 that I noticed and I've never seen before, but we'll talk about that when we get to that movie. The trivia um, was... I see where... The trivia on IMDb has awards. It. it did Oscars, um, all sorts of winners of awards here for it. Well, one thing Danny Glover for Outstanding Actor in an Emotion Picture. <clears throat> but one of the things on the trivia says, first movie to show a modern cell phone. It was a portable Radio Shack model 17-1003, launched circa 1986, close to the filming dates of the movie. So, really, the first cell phone in a film, basically... And I gotta say I'm glad of this because I think it would have been a much different film. It says Mel Gibson turned down starring roles in The Fly and The Untouchables in order to do this movie. I think he's better suited to this than he would have been to either The Fly or The Untouchables. I definitely can't see him in The Untouchables. I mean, he's definitely rigged in this. I mean, he's definitely. He did a damn good job in this movie. He did. Oh, my God. In the scene where Riggs is contemplating suicide, there is an actual bullet blank in the chamber, which Mel Gibson was pointing in his head thinking that would allow the greater sense of portraying the scene realistically and dramatically. Did you, you know, do you remember years ago the guy who played the crow in the movie and he died from the blank that he shot to his head? No. Remember that? 
Brandon Lee was killed by a live ammunition. That was it. There was a stunt man that was offset, not doing anything, had one of the guns and had the blank in the gun and shot himself in the head, not realizing there was a discharge, and it killed him. The air, the air is what killed him from the discharge. I think it's still, like, there's still part of a bullet that comes out. It's just, there's no gunpowder, so it's not the same effect. I can't remember, I'm not sure exactly how the blanks work, but if you get something right up close, there's still the discharge coming out of the gun, and he had it right up against his head. And that killed him. Yeah. yeah. The True Hollywood Story said Gary Busey says he was hired to play Joshua because he they were looking for someone big and menacing, enough to be b- believable for Mel Gibson. Busey also credits the film for reviving his failing movie career. Oh. Danny Glover's character is 50 years old in the movie, but Glover was only 40 years old in 1986. So he was playing 10 years older. Oh no, I, this, this movie, like I said, it's a classic. It's going to be around for years to come. Enjoyed by many different generations. Oh, and I just found this, and we gotta, we gotta go into this one. Blackie Dammit. Blackie Dammit, real name John Kiedis, who portrays one of the drug dealers at the Christmas tree stand, is the father of Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Shut up. So there you go. So Blackie Dammit is his father. <laughs> The, the dad of the Red Hot Chili Peppers is Blackie Dammit. Wow. That is so cool. Blackie Dammit. Wow. Says Roger Murtaugh wasn't written with any ethnicity in mind. Danny Glover was suggested by Marion Doherty after seeing him in the color purple. There was a lot in this movie. Going on behind the scenes. <laughs> to to add tension between the actors, director Richard or Richard Donner told both Gary Busey and Mel Gibson it was the other who kept eating the last waffle. <laughs> so we gotta love Richard Donner just for that. Oh, here it is. Um, he ate the last waffle. No, he ate the last waffle. Could you imagine that on set every day dealing with that? And the prop gun used in this was the same one Bruce Willis used in Die Hard. The gun has since been retired. So that's there's tons of trivia on here that you can go through. There's tons and tons. I mean, it just keeps going. Features the film debut of Joan Severance. Danny Glover played against Gary Busey again in Predator 2, where Glover played a cop again, and Gary Busey played an ex-Special Forces soldier again. Oh, shut up. Listen, when Murtaugh and Riggs are walking down the street discussing how Murtaugh and Hunsaker, a movie theater's marquee displays The Lost Boys, this year's hit, said Richard Donner also produced The Lost Boys. Wow. I I knew he was a producer on The Lost Boys. Of course he's going to plug that movie. He produced a lot of the X-Men stuff with with Lauren Schuller Donner. So, I mean, it's... The, 
it does say John Saxon was the first choice for the role of Joshua, but he was busy shooting A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. And I'm looking up to see which one was Joshua. I'm thinking it was Gary Busey. Yeah, Gary Busey played Joshua. So John Saxon was the first choice for that role. But, and we could go on and on with this film, but I think we've pretty much got the highlights. So, since you picked it, you want to go ahead and give your rating on it? Yeah, I remember this movie came out, and I remember watching it and just simply amazed by it, by all the action and everything that's inside of it. I, it it's still, even after watching it again, it sucks you in. At least it did me. And um, it's a damn good movie. I'm gonna give it. Um, I'm gonna give it a good rating. I'm gonna give it a. I want to give it a four point because the acting is on point. It just. It's it's a phenomenal film. It really is. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I gotta say, I was not looking forward to revisiting this film because, like I said, I've lost so much faith in Mel Gibson, and. Don't look at him like that. But look it's, at the film for what still, it is. It's still, he has hurt so much of his performances because of the person he is. And so I was not looking forward to that, to watching it again. And it had been probably 20 years since I'd watched this film. And I remember when I started at the theater, Lethal Weapon 3 was playing. It was one of the movies we had. So, kind of tells you how old I am there. But anyways, the... <coughs> You're old. <coughs> not as old as you. But... Uh, not, if, not if I die before you and you'll pass me. Uh-huh. You'll still be older. The, the thing about this was, it really surprised me that it was as enjoyable as it was. I didn't think as highly of it as you, but... Overall, I'd say a three out of five. It was very enjoyable. I mean, it is. And that brings us to the Donner Cut hey, of Superman 2. Hold on. Did he, did he go ahead and, and... I didn't look. Did he go ahead and produce the Lethal Weapon 2 and 3? He directed all four of them. Oh, he did? Yes. Okay. I didn't look at that. Yeah, his... And I, I don't know about producer credits, but he's he's got director credits. Lethal Weapon 4, 1998. Lethal Weapon 3, 1992. Lethal Weapon 2, 1989. And Lethal Weapon 1987. So, he directed all four Lethal Weapon movies. So, at least with that, you had consistency through it. Which was one of the things that did hurt Superman along the way, was... I think changing directors and I touched on it last week the well first off when, as we're going into Superman 2 the Donner Cut 7.6 out of 10 on IMDB with 15,000 votes so obviously it's been well accepted this to me was what fixed what was wrong with Superman 2 it is a much stronger film yes I have a question, so I raise my hand. It's been a long time since I've seen Superman, just 
2, what's the difference between this movie and, the, and Superman 2? Well, one of the things, and granted he had to use... Because I honestly did not see any difference visually except for they cleaned it up digitally. Oh, there's quite a few differences. Um, well, I knew you would know it. That's why I'm well, asking. Well, it's been a long time since I've watched the original Superman 2 because I prefer the Donner cut when it came to be. And I don't remember how many years ago they actually put this out, but I think it was initially for the Superman movie box set when Superman Returns had come out and they did all the movies together. I think that was the first time they did the Superman 2, the Donner cut, but I'm not positive. But one of the things was the way Lois found out that Clark was Superman because in the Donner cut, and granted there's a lot of spoilers here for a movie that's 40 years old, but the, the Donner cut had to use the test screening footage where they went in and in front of a camera did their auditions and on the DVD special features you can see Stockard Channing in the role of Lois Lane where they actually filmed her performing in some of these scenes but it was scenes that were written for the film that were changed in, in the official version because of Richard Donner having a falling out with the, um, oh, the producers, the Reitmans, and, and Warner Brothers as well. They wanted the film finished. He wanted to continue working and have both films done so he could cut one and then cut the second and then release them. And Warner Brothers was paying a lot of money and didn't want to keep going into it. So they basically said, we need to finish this film, get Superman done, and we're moving on. And so then the, that falling out led to a new, di new director for Superman 2. But the, the scene where she finds out in the Donner cut, the test footage, is Lois actually pulls a gun on Clark in the hotel room and shoots him. And he then reveals that he's Superman and says, you realize that if I, if you had been wrong, Clark would be dead. And she goes, with yeah. a blank? So she fooled him with a blank in the gun, shooting him. In the theatrical version, he trips, and his glasses tumble into the fire where he reaches in real quick to grab them, and she goes to look at his hand, and there's no damage at all. I remember that. And, yeah. I mean, it worked for the movie, but it definitely was a major scene change. The biggest thing, and the best change for this film, was there was no cellophane S. What? Where Superman basically peeled his emblem off and threw it at one of the villains... And it grew and wrapped around them as cellophane wrap. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was one of the worst superpowers they ever gave Superman. And it was removed. And I, I don't know if it made it into the theatrical cut, but I don't remember the kid being killed by Zod. Until I, I saw that it. Either. 
because you know the kid goes riding away on the horse, and Zod throws yeah, something they, at him and they, kills they him. Throws the bomb. Yeah. And I was like, that's really violent. So I don't know if it made it into the theatrical release or not, but there were a lot of changes. The whole movie's violent. I mean, you just can't. Yeah, but it's a kid killing I know a, it's a kid. kid it's like whenever children die in a movie and also animals, that's one of the cardinal sins. You don't do that. But just for eliminating the cellophane S, Donner gets all the points here. Because that was, I mean, everybody pretty much agrees it's the worst superpower ever given to Superman. And there were some, there were some differences that, I don't know why they all of a sudden they had these powers. But, like, mental control, like, the the sheriff is shooting the three of them, and Zod just has the gun float over to him. So, and that was used again in Superman 4 when Superman basically pointed at the Great Wall of China and rebuilt it. But, I don't know why that was a power, but, it, again, it works, so... But the cellophane S, that one needed to go. So. But of course, oh. the cast, Gene Hackman, Christopher Reeve, Ned Beatty, Marlon Brando. What? Yep. That's it. There it goes. And uh, let's see who else is in here. Margot Kidder, fantastic Lois Lane. Mark McClure, who also portrayed... Jimmy Olsen in the Supergirl movie. Uh, another name you might recognize was John Ratzenberger. He was Cliff Clavin in Cheers. He was one of the controllers in it. Uh, Terrence Stamp oh my gosh, yeah. was General Zod. And Terrence Stamp, just a phenomenal actor. If you really want to see him portraying somebody where he's really acting, watch The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, in which he plays a transsexual. He was phenomenal in that role. And his deliveries are so good, too. Like The the kneel before Zod and the his he acting in, in Priscilla, just, he's phenomenal. He played in Superman 1 as well, and as, yeah. and as late as um, he played in 2020 in um, His Dark Materials, whatever that is. But he was also in Star Wars. I believe he played Chancellor Valorian in Star Wars. So, lots and lots of stuff He's in there. Smallville. Yep, he was the voice of Drill in Smallville. First up, we'll read the trivia here from IMDb, the very first item on there. Richard Donner had been approached about a possible director's cut of this film as early as 2001. However, complex legal issues involving the cut footage, as well as reluctance on the part of Donner, prevented any official restoration from taking place. All this charged with the production of Superman Returns, which led to Warner Brothers resolving all outstanding legal disputes regarding footage from the first two Superman films. By that time... Public demand led Warner Brothers to commission a Donner cut edited by Michael Thal based on the original shooting script without Donner's participation. After repeated urging by Thal, 
Donner eventually agreed to approve of scenes as Thal progressed in editing. Over time, the more Donner allowed himself to participate in the project, the more interest he took in restoring his original concept for the film, even going so far as to bring screenwriter Tom Mankiewicz to the fold to ensure story cohesion. The result is the closest film possible to Donner and Mankiewicz's original vision for the film. So, there you go. Donner was dedicated to making this the best that he could in what was truly his and the writer's vision. So, gotta give him credit for that. Well, it seems like this Donner dude is getting the last lap on everything. Well, Richard Donner was phenomenal. There is no two ways about it. I just looked up at Terrence Stamp because he's still alive. He's still... Guess what his net worth is? What? Ten million. I'm actually surprised by that. Well, I mean, Richard Donner? Is that who you said? Or Terrence Stamp? Um, Terrence. Terrence. The guy who... Yeah. Well, Superman 1 and 2, Smallville, Star Wars... Let alone everything else that he's done. But those alone have gotten, gotten him some money. Another bit of trivia here. The green crystal Clark picks up in the Fortress of Solitude as a prop from Superman Returns. A shot of Michael Thal's hands was used for Clark picking up the green crystal. All Richard Donner's net worth? $200 million. Well, with Lethal Weapon and Superman alone... I mean, yeah, wow. This is the only Superman movie where the line up, up, and away is said by one of the characters. So, we're down to about the final five minutes, so we'll go ahead and do our ratings and I gotta say this movie Superman 2 was always my favorite Superman film and quite possibly will always be my favorite Superman film even the original theatrical cut with its problems and changes I still enjoyed it better than all the others I like that Superman had super villains instead of Lex Luthor because too many times they rely on Lex Luthor, and it gets old. So, um, <clears throat> I gotta point out something right here. You know the movie where uh, Superman turned back time yeah. to erase everything that happened. Yeah. And then he, at the very end of the movie, he goes back to that cafe and confronts that trucker, and the trucker recognized him. That should have never happened. He would have never remembered that. Yeah, but... I think that's partly due to the theatrical version. They're talking about, they yeah. talking about how that was a goof. Well, that the theatrical version had him kiss Lois and make her forget who he was. So, yeah, I think uh... that's part of... That was the best thing they could do with it. But... Anyways, as, as far as this film goes, I love it. I think it's the best cut of this film. I'm going to give it a 4 out of 5. 
because I really enjoy this one. I know we got, we're pressed for time. I'm just going to go ahead and give it a rating. Uh, Superman, love it. This is a great film. I love this version. I'm going to go with you on this as well, four, four out of five. So, and I mean, we could sit here and talk all night about Richard Donner films because we didn't get into the Lost Boys that he produced. We didn't get into the X-Men movies that he produced. We didn't get into the Goonies. So, so many great moments. For those of you out there listening, please go look at his list. Watch some of his stuff. Understand why he was such a beloved director. And just the fact for what he did with Superman alone put him in my heart forever. And the have lost him. Like, I mean, 91, yes, a good age. But still... It's one of your all-time greats. And nobody's ever ready for anybody to leave this earth. But sometimes we miss others, or sometimes we miss some more than others, just because of what they accomplished in their time on earth. And this is definitely one of those people. So, check out anything you can with him. Honor his memory. Honor the films and shows that he gave us. Because he gave us a lot of quality stuff. Producing Tales from the Crypt as well as directing three episodes. So, and that's where I'm going to leave it because I just can't say enough good about Richard Donner. Any last words, Paul? Wash your hands, wear your mask, get vaccinated. And for next week, we don't have a plan yet. We'll be recording almost a week and a half from now, so we'll figure out something and converse with each other. So remember, if you like us, please hit the like, please subscribe, and definitely share us with your friends. Let them enjoy the fun that we have here. So until next week, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.